Turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 2. Is that for me? I have to get a tip bowl up here in the future. This is tacky. Nehemiah is the autobiography of a man who took God seriously, of a man who took God at his word. And based on his confidence in God, he was instrumental in actually changing the course of a nation. Now on the surface, Nehemiah appeared to be a rather unlikely leader. He was born and raised in a foreign country 800 miles from home. He was a slave under Persian rule. He had never seen the city of Jerusalem, and he was a cupbearer by trade. But you see, that was just what was on the surface. God never defines a leader by what is on the surface. He defines a leader by what is under the surface. And Nehemiah had the heart of a leader. His heart was in tune with God. And when he inquired about the welfare of the Jews in Jerusalem and was told that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire, he wept and he mourned for days. His heart was broken over the things that broke God's heart. He had the heart of a leader. And he had the faith of a leader. When confronted with the desolation of Jerusalem, he turned immediately to God in prayer and he claimed the promises in his word. He had the faith of a leader. Nehemiah had the mind of a leader. He understood that God was bigger than the problem. And that's why when he began his prayer in chapter 1 and verse 5, he addresses God as the great and awesome God. And not only that, but he understood that the real problem was sin. He knew that the deterioration of a culture is first and foremost a spiritual issue. It was then and it still is today. And so Jerusalem was in ruins because of the sin of the people. And that's why in chapter 1 and verse 6, when Nehemiah prayed, he said, we have sinned. He had the mind of a leader. And then finally, he had the will of a leader. His one prayer request in chapter 1 is, use me. In verse 11, he says, make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man that is King Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer for a world emperor, and he saw his position as key to what God wanted to do. Now, about 30 years before this time, another Jew by the name of Esther became the queen of the Persian Empire. And when the Jewish people were in trouble because the king had signed an edict saying all Jews should be destroyed, Queen Esther's first response was, I don't think I want to get involved. And so Mordecai, her cousin, said to her in Esther 4.14, if you don't step forward and do something, God will use someone else. God gets his job done, and if you don't step forward and do it, God will find someone else to do it. And then he said to her these words, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for just such a time as this? Who knows whether God hasn't put you in this position for just a moment like this? I wonder if you've ever thought about that in terms of your career, your job opportunity, whether or not God maybe has placed you there for a moment just like this to use you in that situation. Nehemiah realized that his influential job in the court of Persia was no accident. 
that God had placed him there for a purpose. And so he says to God, I'm available, use me. Now chapter 1 is primarily prayer. Chapter 2 is primarily action. Chapter 1 shows us the leader on his knees. Chapter 2 shows us the leader from the knees up. And in chapter 2, we will trace five events in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's answer, Nehemiah's affirmation, Nehemiah's appraisal, Nehemiah's appeal, and Nehemiah's assurance. First of all, Nehemiah's answer, which we see in verses 1 to 8. Notice verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem, according to chapter 1 and verse 1, in the month Chislev, which would be December. And it's now in the month Nisan, which would be April, and so it's four months later. You say, well, if Nehemiah was so distraught about the situation in Jerusalem, why didn't he charge right into the presence of the king immediately? Why didn't he come right before the king and ask if he could go to Jerusalem and try to solve the problem? Well, the answer is that you didn't do that with a Persian king. If you did that once, you wouldn't do it again. In fact, if you look at the next book in the Bible, Esther, chapter 4 and verse 11... We have a little input in there, in, in this verse, into the standard protocol in the Persian court. Chapter 4, verse 11 of Esther. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Now that's the queen speaking. The queen says, I can't even come to the king unless he summons me. And it was a capital offense for anyone to address the king without being asked. And so you see, Nehemiah is in a tough situation. He can't ask the king for anything unless the king first asks him to ask. And I imagine there were a few days when he just turned to his cupbearer and said, you know, I'm in a benevolent mood today. What would you like? But that's what Nehemiah needs. And so Nehemiah prays about the situation because he knows that only God can change the king's heart. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we read, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Have you got a boss that's just plain ornery? Have you got a spouse who says, I will not change? Don't try to manipulate them and don't try to play games and don't try to plan schemes. Get down on your knees and pray that God will change their hearts because that's what he specializes in. Now in chapter 1 and verse 11, Nehemiah asked for an answer today. He didn't get an answer for four months. And during those four months between chapters 1 and 2, there are no entries in Nehemiah's diary because nothing seemed to be happening. But Nehemiah continued to pray. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6, we read that he prayed day and night for four months. Now, there's an important lesson in that. Don't stop praying 
just because you don't see anything happening. Don't stop praying just because heaven seems to be quiet. About four months ago, my wife bought some bulbs. The way things work in my family is she buys, I plant. So she bought some bulbs. And so I took the bulbs out, and, and in various places in our yard, I planted them about six inches deep. So throughout this winter, occasionally I've taken walks out to check on my bulbs. They're my bulbs now. Um, to check on my bulbs. And I, I checked on the bulbs, and nothing was happening with the bulbs. About a week ago, we had a nice warm day, and I went out in the yard, and I walked around the yard to check on my bulbs, and every one of them was busting out of the ground. These stalks starting to burst through the ground. You see, for, for four months, I couldn't tell that anything was happening, but there was a lot of activity going on. You see, God's activity is just like those bulbs. I may not see much going on, but God is doing a lot of things behind the scenes. Nehemiah prayed and he waited for four months. In fact, Nehemiah prayed for the walls in Jerusalem twice as long as it took to build them. And Nehemiah prayed and prayed and prayed for four months. And meanwhile, he was doing his job day after day. He was the cupbearer to the king. And he was coming in before the king, and every day he was wearing his McDonald's happy face. He wept in his room, but when he came before the king, he was smiling. And that's why it says at the end of verse 1, Now I had not been sad in his presence. But on this day, Nehemiah could hold it in no longer. You know, most of us get a burden for the things of God on Sunday, and we lose it throughout the week as we're working. Nehemiah had a burden that didn't go away. And in the midst of his work, his sadness leaked. And so the king said in verse 2, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, don't read into this that Nehemiah tried to look sad in the presence of the king so that he would ask and so that he would manipulate the situation. That's evident that he wasn't doing that because his immediate rea reaction was, I was very much afraid. I, I didn't realize that my sadness was showing, but the king pointed it out to me, and when I realized it, I was afraid. That's important for us to understand. Some of us pray and then we manip manipulate people. God never expects us to do that. I have been on... Christian boards with people who looked me in the eye and said, let's pray about that. And I prayed about it, and they went out and made phone calls and met with people and had lunch with people and swayed the vote so it would go their way. That's not what God calls us to do. When we pray, we're to wait and let God answer that. If you're praying for your spouse, don't try to manipulate them. Don't try to look so, so spiritual all the time, you know? When your spouse asks you what you're doing, don't give them that, the, the eyelids at half-mast look and the, the sort of syrupy, well, I'm praying for you that God will change your heart answer. You know. Pray in your closet and wait and trust God to change people's hearts. Now, I appreciate Nehemiah's honesty. Many, many leaders refuse to admit their human weaknesses. But Nehemiah says, 
I was scared. Nehemiah shows us his cracks, and I like that about him. Now, why was he so afraid? Two reasons. Number one, it was against the law to be sad in the presence of the king unless you were sick. There were a lot of laws in Persia. Couldn't be sad in his presence unless you were sick. Two reasonings behind that. One is that the king had the burden of the entire empire upon him. And so if you worked in the court, one of your job descriptions was that you had to be happy all the time. You had to be jolly and joyful so that you didn't depress the king. And the second reasoning behind this was to be in the king's presence was the most wonderful thing that could happen to anybody. So no matter what your personal problems happen to be, they should pale into insignificance in the light of the joy of being in the presence of the king. It ought to make your day to be in the presence of the king. So to be in the presence of the king and to be sad was an insult to him. So when the king speaks to Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, why are you sad? He says, I was afraid because the next words were liable to be, take him out and execute him. But there was a second reason why he was afraid, and that was if he didn't get executed, he knew that he was about to ask the king to leave his court. And that again was an insult to the king because who would want to be anywhere else but in the presence of the king, because that was the most wonderful place to be. And so to ask to go elsewhere was an insult to the king. And so when the king asked, why are you sad, Nehemiah trembled. Now, he could have done like we do sometimes and said, me? Who, me sad? Ha, I'm not sad. You know, you ever find yourself doing that? You're praying about something, God gives you the opportunity, and you back away from the opportunity. Nehemiah gets the opportunity here. The king asks him why he's sad, and he lays it on the table, verse 3. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now, that's a great start. Let the king live forever. And then he answers, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. How can I keep from being sad when the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins? You see, my sorrow stems from the condition of my hometown 800 miles away. And having said that to the king, we get the response in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what would you request? Bingo. That's what Nehemiah has been waiting for for four months. What would you request? Now, can you imagine Nehemiah? He's been anticipating this possibility for four months, and now it arises. You would think he would jump right in and grab it, but that's not what he does. Look at the end of verse 4. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah has the opportunity to make a request between, before the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world. But before he does, he makes a request from the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah doesn't say, excuse me, and go back to his room and get in his prayer closet and, and pray. And he doesn't stand before the king and lift up his hands and say, oh, God of heaven, great and awesome God. This is one of those prayers on the run. You see, when you cultivate a relationship with God through times of prayer, then you can breathe prayers in the middle of conversations like Nehemiah does. 
The king asks him, what is your request? And before he gives the answer, Nehemiah says, God, this is it. Help me say the right words. And then he spells out his request in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. There's the request. Send me to Judah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then the king, in verse 6, said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Now it's obvious that King Artaxerxes was not anxious to let Nehemiah go. He didn't say, great, I've been looking for a way to get rid of this guy. Go ahead. No, he says, how long will it take and when will you be back? You see, Nehemiah was valuable to the king and he wants to know how long this is going to take. And so Nehemiah says in verse 6, I gave him a definite time. Now we're not told in this chapter what the time is, but we are told over in chapter 5 and verse 14. Guess what the time was? The time was 12 years. Now that's a long leave of absence. How long do you think this will take? 12 years. Now that tells me something. It tells me that a king would not let a man like Nehemiah that he trusted so much that tasted his food before he ate it, he would not allow that man to go away for 12 years unless he saw some benefit to his kingdom in doing so. Historians tell us that King Artaxerxes Longomanus had a lot of uprisings in his kingdom while he was the king of Persia. Several of those uprisings were in Egypt. And so it seems to me that he may look at, be looking at a strategy here and he may be saying, well, if I send him off to establish Jerusalem and build up Judah, then that Judah sits right between Susa, the capital, and Egypt, right near the border of Egypt. And so that would be a strategic spot for me to have somebody that I trust very much. In fact, I think that explains to us why in chapter 5 and verse 14 we find that he not only sent him, but he assigned him to be the governor of Judah. And so he made him the governor of that area. In fact, some have suggested that the word of unrest in Egypt may have reached the ears of the king during the four months that Nehemiah was praying. So when Nehemiah couldn't see anything happening, there was actually a whole lot of things going on. Because God was preparing the king's heart and softening his heart and making it more pliable to the response of Nehemiah. You see, with God, timing is everything. He's got to make your life coincide with all kinds of other lives to make all things work together for good. And that takes timing. If Nehemiah had charged in four months earlier, we would not have a book of Nehemiah in the Bible. Because the heart, the heart of the king would not have been prepared and Nehemiah probably would have been executed. And the thing we learn from Nehemiah is that it's just as important to wait on God as it is to go when God opens the door. Nehemiah waited for four months and when the door opened, he was ready to obey God. When the children of Israel got to the promised land, God said, go in. Well, the children of Israel sent spies in. They checked it out. They voted. They decided, we won't go in. 
So God said, all right, don't go in. You'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You know what the children of Israel did then in Numbers chapter 14? They decided they'd go in. Now we'll go. And Moses said, you better not. And they went anyway and they were defeated because it's just as important to wait when God says wait as it is to go when God says go. So Nehemiah waited for the right opportunity to make his request to the king. And he tells us in verse 6, it pleased the king to send me. He made his request and the king said yes. But Nehemiah isn't finished making his requests. Notice verse 7. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Now there were a lot of provinces between Susa and Judah in that 800 miles. And none of those governors knew who Nehemiah was. So Nehemiah says, I would like letters, personal letters from you, the king, to each one of those governors so that I will be ensured safe passage through their province. And then he makes a second request in verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. Now what's he asking for? He's asking for the king to finance the project. He's asking for a government grant. See? He says, I want a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress. That would be the part of the wall right by the temple to protect it. For the walls of the city and for the house. That would be the governor's house that he's going to build. Now, Nehemiah didn't know when this conversation was going to occur, but he was prepared for it. And when the king finally said, what's the request? Nehemiah pulled a shopping list out of his back pocket, didn't he? And he said, I would like time, 12 years, and I would like authority, letters to the governors, and I would like resources, lumber to build with. You see, Nehemiah was praying for four months. He was also doing something else, and that was he was planning. Now, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that the presence of faith means the absence of organization. Proverbs, 10, or Proverbs 16, 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Some people say, well, I'm not going to think it through. I'm just going to go by faith. Well, you see, faith and thinking it through go hand in hand. Because planning is really thinking it through by faith. And some people don't like to acknowledge that because planning is hard work. And thinking is not as exciting as involvement, but without it, confusion is inevitable. Nehemiah was an effective leader because he did his homework. He said and thought about how long it would take to accomplish this. He thought about the possible pitfalls, what would happen if the governors wouldn't let him through. He thought about the necessary resources. And you see, his planning was not a lack of faith. His planning was actually an expression of his faith. He prayed about the opportunity and he was so certain by faith that it was going to happen that it, when it did happen, he was fully ready for it. But on the other hand, though Nehemiah had planned well, he wasn't trusting his plan. He was trusting the Lord 
to make his plan go. Which is what we read at the end of verse 8 when it says, And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah says, The king granted them to me because I came up with a clever plan. No. Because I was a brilliant individual. No. Because I was a smooth politician and a great businessman. No. The king granted my request because the good hand of my God was on me. You see, plans are useless if God doesn't put his hand on the individual to make it happen. And that was true in the case of Nehemiah, and that is Nehemiah's answer. Second event we find in chapter 2 of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's affirmation in verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now I see this as Nehemiah's affirmation. Two ways that you can tell that God's hand is on you. Number one, you get more than you asked for. You see, Nehemiah asked for some time off and some letters and some wood. He didn't ask for an army to give him a political escort. But that's what he got because that's the way God is. You see, God does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. See, the way that you can tell that God is in it is when he gives you the things you didn't even ask for. When you ask him for A and he gives you B and C. When you ask him for a little and he gives you a lot. See, my wife asked for a husband and God gave her me. Uh, scratch that. I don't know where that came from. Just about the time you start to say, well, maybe, maybe that was just luck. God proves that it was his hand because he throws in bonuses. He blesses us beyond what we expected. He outdoes the request. Second way you can tell God's hand is on you is you come across more opposition. Verse 10 says, when Sanballat and Tobiah heard about it, they were not happy. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah are two fellows we're going to run into several times throughout the book of Nehemiah, and we'll talk about them in detail at a later time, but for now, we'll simply note that the opposition was forming. You see, that's the way it always is when God, God's hand is on you. When God's hand starts to move, Satan's going to come in and bring some resistance. And so, Nehemiah starts to move forward, and immediately there are enemies that appear on the scene that weren't there before. So there's Nehemiah's affirmation. He got more blessings than he asked for, and he got more opposition than he expected. And those are two things you can mark if you're going to be used by God. Third event in this chapter is Nehemiah's appraisal, which is real brief in verses 11 to 16. Notice verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. We're not told what he was doing for these three days, but he was there. He was probably resting. 
In Ezra chapter 8 and verse 32, we're told that Ezra did the same thing. He got there and he waited three days. They were recuperating from an 800-mile trip that in the case of Ezra, we know took him five months. So for the thir- first three days, they rested, and, or he rested, and then verse 12 says, And I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. That's interesting to me. Nehemiah came into the city of Jerusalem with an army escort. You can imagine the people of Jerusalem were looking on thinking, who's this guy and what's he up to? So he goes into his house and he does nothing for three days. And then he comes out under the cover of darkness with just a few men and only one animal, which was probably a horse, which we read about back in verse 9. And he goes out and he's going to inspect the walls of Jerusalem. Now you would expect him to come in with this army escort and say, I'm here to fix the problem. That's not what he does. He lays low and now he's going to check out the problem before he ever talks about a solution. And so verse 13 says, So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well. That would be the west gate in Jerusalem. And then on to the refuse gate, which means he came out the west gate and he went down to the refuse gate, which is right down at the southern edge of Jerusalem, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate. That would be on the lower east wall, right down at the bottom. And the king's pool, which is probably what we know of in the New Testament as the pool of Siloam. But there was no place for my mount to pass. Nehemiah came out the west gate, the valley gate. He came down around the southern wall. And he went, when he got on the lower part of the east wall, he came to a portion where his animal couldn't even get through. Because there was so much debris from the broken down wall that he couldn't even pass. And so verse 15 says, So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. That probably means he went down into the Kidron Valley, which runs along the eastern wall, and he rode up through the ravine, and from down there in the valley, he looked up and he examined the eastern wall. And then when he got up to the northern part of that wall, he just summarizes at the end of verse 15, then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Apparently, he went on across the northern part, down the western wall, and back in the way he came. And so he went out and he circled at night the city of Jerusalem and inspected the wall. And then verse 16 adds, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell the Persian officials. He didn't tell the Jewish officials or the priests or the nobles. Nobody. You see, this was for Nehemiah. This was personal. He had heard from his brother about the condition of the walls. Now he goes out under the cover of darkness and he gets to see the problem firsthand. And as he picks his way through the debris of the walls of Jerusalem, that once majestic city, I imagine a couple things were taking place in his mind. I can imagine that he was refreshing his burden. The tears that had first flowed about nine months earlier now probably welled up in his eyes again as he saw the condition of the walls. He refreshed his burden. And then the second thing he did, I think, was he counted the cost. He looked at the damage and said, what's it going to take 
to rebuild these walls? Am I willing to commit myself to this project? You see, that's something every leader must do. If I'm going to rebuild the walls, I first have to take an honest look at the ruins. I have to face the failures. I have to see it at its worst. For Nehemiah, before he brings a solution, he goes out in the night and he inspects the damage. That's Nehemiah's appraisal. Which brings us to the fourth event in this chapter, and that's Nehemiah's appeal in verses 17 and 18. And we'll close with this this morning. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Now, Nehemiah has inspected the walls. And so now he can speak firsthand and say, the situation we're in is bad. And what I like about Nehemiah is that he doesn't soft sell it. He doesn't say, well, it's, it's not as bad as I thought. He says, it's awful. The situation is bad. The walls are down. All the gates are burned with fire. The walls are devastated. But what I also like about Nehemiah is that he doesn't accuse anybody. He doesn't say, it's your fault. See, he identifies with them. Nehemiah doesn't say, look at the bad situation you're in. Nehemiah says, look at the bad situation we're in. An effective leader always identifies with the people, even in the problems that they're in. And then comes the appeal at the end of verse 17. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. I like that. Come, let us rebuild. Now, Nehemiah doesn't say, you rebuild the wall and I'll be in my office if you need me. And Nehemiah doesn't say, get out of my way, I'll rebuild the wall. It's not a one-man thing. He says, let us gather together, unite together, and let us rebuild the wall so that each person has a share of the load. Why? The end of verse 17 says that we no longer be a reproach. We're an embarrassment. We are the people of Almighty God and all the other cities around us have walls and ours lay desolate on the ground. We're an embarrassment. And then the motivation is in verse 18. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Now, Nehemiah gives his testimony. Nehemiah says, let me tell you what God has done in my life and how God has moved me to be here on this day. And let me tell you how God has actually moved the king of Persia to send me on this mission. And so he gives his testimony. And in response to his testimony, notice what the people say in verse 18. Then they said, let us arise and build. Now these people have been there all this time. The walls have been lying in ruin. They've been walking over them. But they've never been motivated to do anything about it until now. And Nehemiah gives them a challenge, places before them this appeal, tells them his testimony, and they say, we're with you. We catch the vision that you, Nehemiah, have. And we're going to rebuild the walls. And then I love the end of verse 18. It says... So they put their hands to the good work. Now, Nehemiah had said earlier in verse 18, God's hand is on me. 
And now we read that they put their hands on the hand of God. God was already moving through Nehemiah, and they simply said, we're going to put our hands on the hand of God as it moves. And that's why it's called a good work, because it's the work of God. They were doing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 1. They were working together with God. God was already doing something. His hand was already moving. He was going to accomplish His work. They simply put their hands together on God's hand as He accomplished the work. And that's why though the walls lay desolate for 140 years, they rebuilt them in 52 days. And I think the lesson is when you get right with God, it doesn't take long. Because when God's hand is working and I simply put my hand on the back of God's hand, things are going to be accomplished. And we're going to stop there this morning. But don't miss the appeal of Nehemiah. I don't know what's broken in your life. Maybe it's your relationship with God. Maybe it's the relationship you have with your family. Corporately, it's, it's our community that's spiritually broken. I don't know what's broken in your life, but I do know that there's never been a wall that God can't rebuild. When we, as people, are willing to say, let us rebuild. And when we, as people, are willing to put our hands on the hand of God and accomplish what He wants to accomplish in this world. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah, a man who was not simply burdened and not simply willing to pray, but willing to go. And Lord, I thank you that he waited for your opportunity and then he stepped forward. And Father, I thank you that he was a man who shows us leadership and motivation and how he rallied people to accomplish something great for you. And Lord, I pray that we might individually look at our hearts today and realize that each one of us can be a Nehemiah. Each one of us can, can be willing to say to you, I'm available, use me. And Lord, as we step forward, we pray that we, might, we like Nehemiah might recognize that it's your hand and it's your work and that we might be careful in all of it to give you the glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.